Section 16 of On Benefits. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Benefits by Seneca. Translated by Aubrey Stewart. Book 5, Chapter 17 to 22. 17. The day would not be long enough for me to enumerate those who have pushed their ingratitude so far as to ruin their native land. It would be as vast a task to mention how often the state has been ungrateful to its best and most devoted lovers, although it has done no less wrong than it has suffered. It sent Camillus and Scipio into exile. Even after the death of Catiline, it exiled Cicero, destroyed his house, plundered his property, and did everything which Catiline would have done if victorious. Rutilius found his virtue rewarded with a hiding place in Asia. To Cato, the Roman people refused the praetorship, and persisted in refusing the consulship. We are ungrateful in public matters, and if every man asks himself, you will find that there is no one who has not some private ingratitude to complain of. Yet it is impossible that all men should complain, unless all were deserving of complaint. Therefore all men are ungrateful. Are they ungrateful alone? Nay. They are also all covetous, all spiteful, and all cowardly, especially those who appear daring. And besides this, all men fawn upon the great, and all are impious. Yet you need not be angry with them. Pardon them for they are all mad. I do not wish to recall you to what is not proved, or to say, See how ungrateful is youth, what a young man, even if of innocent life, does not long for his father's death, even if moderate in his desires, does not look forward to it, even if dutiful, does not think about it. How few there are who fear the death even of the best of wives, who do not even calculate the probabilities of it. Pray, what litigant, after having been successfully defended, retains any remembrance of so great a benefit for more than a few days? All agree that no one dies without complaining. Who, on his last day, dares to say, I've lived, I've done the task which fortune set me? Who does not leave the world with reluctance and with lamentations? yet it is the part of an ungrateful man not to be satisfied with the past. Your days will always be few if you count them. Reflect that length of time is not the greatest of blessings. Make the best of your time, however short it may be. Even if the day of your death be postponed, your happiness will not be increased, for life is merely made longer, not pleasanter, by delay." How much better it is to be thankful for the pleasures which one has received, not to reckon up the years of others, but to set a high value upon one's own, and score them to one's credit, saying, God thought me worthy of this, I am satisfied with it, he might have given me more, but this, too, is a benefit. Let us be grateful towards both gods and men, grateful to those who have given us anything, and grateful even to those who have given anything to our relatives. 18. You render me liable to an infinite debt of gratitude, 
says our opponent, when you say, even to those who have given anything to our relations. So fix some limit. He who bestows a benefit upon the son, according to you, bestows it likewise upon the father. This is the first question I wish to raise. In the next place, I should like to have a clear definition of whether a benefit, if it is bestowed upon your friend's father as well as upon himself, is bestowed also upon his brother, or upon his uncle, or his grandfather, or his wife and his father-in-law. Tell me where I am to stop, how far I am to follow out the pedigree of the family. Seneca, if I cultivate your land, I bestow a benefit upon you. If I extinguish your house when burning, or prop it so as to save it from falling, I shall bestow a benefit upon you. If I heal your slave, I shall charge it to you. If I save your son's life, will you not thereby receive a benefit from me? 19. The Adversary Your instances are not to the purpose, for he who cultivates my land does not benefit the land, but me. He who props my house so that it does not fall does this service to me, for the house itself is without feeling, and as it has none, it is I who am indebted to him. And he who cultivates my land does so because he wishes to oblige me, not to oblige the land. I should say the same of a slave. He is a chattel owned by me. He is saved for my advantage. Therefore I am indebted for him. My son is himself capable of receiving a benefit, so it is he who receives it. I am gratified at a benefit which comes so near to myself, but am not laid under any obligation. Seneca Still, I should like you, who say that you are under no obligation, to answer me this. The good health, the happiness, and the inheritance of a son are connected with his father. His father will be more happy if he keeps his son safe, and more unhappy if he loses him. What follows, then? When a man is made happier by me, and is freed from the greatest danger of unhappiness, does he not receive a benefit? Adversary. No because there are some things which are bestowed upon others, and yet flow from them so as to reach ourselves. Yet we must ask the person upon whom it was bestowed for repayment, as, for example, money must be sought from the man to whom it was lent, although it may, by some means, have come into my hands. There is no benefit whose advantages do not extend to the receiver's nearest friends, and sometimes even to those less intimately connected with him. Yet we do not inquire whether the benefit has proceeded from him to whom it was first given, but where it was first placed. You must demand repayment from the defendant himself, personally. Seneca. Well, but I pray you, do you not say, you have preserved my son for me? Had he perished, I could not have survived him? Do you not owe a benefit for the life of one whose safety you value above your own? Moreover, should I save your son's life, you would fall down before my knees, and would pay vows to heaven as though you yourself had been saved. You would say, It makes no difference whether you have saved mine or me. You have saved us both, yet me more than him. Why do you say this if you do not receive a benefit? Adversary because, if my son were to contract a loan, I should pay his creditor, yet I should not, therefore, be indebted to him. Or, if my son were taken in adultery, I should blush, yet I should not, therefore, be an adulterer. 
I say that I am under an obligation to you for saving my son, not because I really am, but because I am willing to constitute myself your debtor of my own free will. On the other hand, I have derived from his safety the greatest possible pleasure and advantage, and I have escaped the most dreadful blow, the loss of my child. True, but we are not now discussing whether you have done me any good or not, but whether you have bestowed a benefit upon me. For animals, stones, and herbs can do one good, but do not bestow benefits, which can only be given by one who wishes well to the receiver. Now you do not wish well to the father, but only to the son, and sometimes you do not even know the father. So when you have said, Have I not bestowed a benefit upon the father by saving the son? You ought to meet this with, Have I, then, bestowed a benefit upon a father whom I do not know, whom I never thought of? And what will you say when, as is sometimes the case, you hate the father, and yet save his son? Can you be thought to have bestowed a benefit upon one whom you hated most bitterly, while you were bestowing it? However, if I were to lay aside the bickering of dialogue, and answer you as a lawyer, I should say that you ought to consider the intention of the giver. You must regard his benefit as bestowed upon the person upon whom he meant to bestow it. If he did it in honor of the father, then the father received the benefit. If he thought only of the son, then the father is not laid under any obligation. By the benefit which was conferred upon the son, even though the father derives pleasure from it. Should he, however, have an opportunity, he will himself wish to give you something. Yet not as though he were forced to repay a debt, but rather as if he had grounds for beginning an exchange of favors. No return for a benefit ought to be demanded from the father of the receiver. If he does you any kindness in return for it, he should be regarded as a righteous man, but not as a grateful one. For there is no end to it. If I bestow a benefit on the receiver's father, do I likewise bestow it upon his mother, his grandfather, his maternal uncle, his children, relations, friends, slaves, and country? Where, then, does a benefit begin to stop? For there follows it this endless chain of people, to whom it is hard to assign bounds, because they join it by degrees, and are always creeping on towards it. 20. A common question is, two brothers are at variance. If I save the life of one, do I confer a benefit upon the other, who will be sorry that his hated brother did not perish? There can be no doubt that it is a benefit to do good to a man, even against that man's will, just as he, who against his own will does a man good, does not bestow a benefit upon him. Do you, asks our adversary, call that by which he is displeased and hurt a benefit? Yes. Many benefits have a harsh and forbidding appearance, such as cutting or burning to cure disease, or confining with chains. We must not consider whether a man is grieved at receiving a benefit, but whether he ought to rejoice. A coin is not bad because it is refused by a savage who is unacquainted with its proper stamp. A man receives a benefit, even though he hates what is done, provided that it does him good, and that the giver bestowed it in order to do him good. It makes no difference if he receives a good thing in a bad spirit. Consider the converse of this. Suppose that a man hates his brother, though it is to his advantage to have a brother, and I kill his brother. This is not a benefit, though he may say it is, and be glad of it. 
our most artful enemies are those whom we thank for the wrongs which they do to us. I understand. A thing which does good is a benefit. A thing which does harm is not a benefit. Now I will suggest to you an act which neither does good nor harm, and yet is a benefit. Suppose that I find the corpse of someone's father in a wilderness, and bury it. Then I certainly have done him no good, for what difference could it make to him in what manner his body decayed? Nor have I done any good to his son, for what advantage does he gain by my act? I will tell you what he gains. He has by my means performed a solemn and necessary rite. I have performed a service for his father which he would have wished, nay, which it would have been his duty to have performed himself. Yet this act is not a benefit, if I merely yielded to those feelings of pity and kindliness which would make me bury any corpse whatever, but only if I recognized this body and buried it, with the thought in my mind that I was doing this service to the sun. But by merely throwing earth over a dead stranger, I lay no one under an obligation for an act performed on general principles of humanity. It may be asked, Why are you so careful in inquiring upon whom you bestow benefits, as though some day you meant to demand repayment of them? Some say the repayment should never be demanded, and they give the following reasons. An unworthy man will not repay the benefit which he has received, even if it be demanded of him while a worthy man will do so of his own accord. Consequently, if you have bestowed it upon a good man, wait. Do not outrage him by asking him for it, as though of his own accord he never would repay it. If you have bestowed it upon a bad man, suffer for it, but do not spoil your benefit by turning it into a loan. Moreover, the law, by not authorizing you, forbids you, by implication, to demand the repayment of a benefit. All this is nonsense. As long as I am in no pressing need, as long as I am not forced by poverty, I will lose my benefits rather than ask for repayment. But if the lives of my children were at stake, if my wife were in danger, if my regard for the welfare of my country and of my own liberty were to force me to adopt a course which I disliked, I should overcome my delicacy and openly declare that I had done all that I could to avoid the necessity of receiving help from an ungrateful man. The necessity of obtaining repayment of one's benefit will, in the end, overcome one's delicacy about asking for it. In the next place, when I bestow a benefit upon a good man, I do so with the intention of never demanding repayment, except in case of absolute necessity. 21. But, argues he, by not authorizing you, the law forbids you to exact repayment. There are many things which are not enforced by any law or process, but which the conventions of society, which are stronger than any law, compel us to observe. There is no law forbidding us to divulge our friend's secrets. There is no law which bids us keep faith even with an enemy. Pray, what law is there which binds us to stand by what we have promised? There is none. Nevertheless, I should remonstrate with one who did not keep a secret, and I should be indignant with one who pledged his word and broke it. But, he argues, you are turning a benefit into a loan. By no means, for I do not insist upon repayment, but only demand it. Nay, I do not even demand it, but remind my friend of it. Even the direst help will not bring me to apply for help to one with whom I should have to undergo a long struggle. 
if there be any one so ungrateful that it is not sufficient to remind him of his debt, I should pass him over, and think that he did not deserve to be made grateful by force. A money-lender does not demand repayment from his debtors if he knows they have become bankrupt, and to their shame have nothing but shame left to lose. And I, like him, should pass over those who are openly and obstinately ungrateful, and should demand repayment only from those who were likely to give it me, not from those from whom I should have to extort it by force. 22. There are many who cannot deny that they have received a benefit, yet cannot return it. Men who are not good enough to be termed grateful, nor yet bad enough to be termed ungrateful, but who are dullard and sluggish, backward debtors, though not defaulters. Such men as these I should not ask for repayment, but forcibly remind them of it, and, from a state of indifference, bring them back to their duty. They would at once reply, Forgive me, I did not know, by Hercules, that you missed this, or I would have offered it of my own accord. I beg that you will not think me ungrateful. I remember your goodness to me. Why need I hesitate to make such men as these better to themselves than to me? I would prevent anyone from doing wrong, if I were able. Much more would I prevent a friend, both lest he should do wrong, and lest he should do wrong to me in particular. I bestow a second benefit upon him by not permitting him to be ungrateful, and I should not reproach him harshly with what I had done for him, but should speak as gently as I could. In order to afford him an opportunity of returning my kindness, I should refresh his remembrance of it, and ask for a benefit. He would understand that I was asking for repayment. Sometimes I would make use of somewhat severe language, if I had any hope that, by it, he might be amended, though I would not irritate a hopelessly ungrateful man, for fear that I might turn him into an enemy. If we spare the ungrateful even the affront of reminding them of their conduct, we shall render them more backward in returning benefits. And although some might be cured of their evil ways, and be made into good men, if their consciences were stung by remorse, yet we shall allow them to perish for want of a word of warning, with which a father sometimes corrects his son, a wife brings back to herself an erring husband, or a man stimulates the wavering fidelity of his friend. End of section 16 Recording by Todd